0: Hello, and welcome to episode number 54 of the Know Your Physio podcast. I'm your host, Andres Prachelle, helping you discover your science to optimize your life. And today's guest is Joelle Green. Now, this episode, well, brace yourselves, because this episode is my longest and probably my densest for all the right reasons. Because, of course, one of our core values and missions here at Know Your Physio is doing the research justice. While making it accessible enough for you to apply, understand, and thrive. So that's the goal. And Joel does an incredible job at taking us through the nitty gritty and then making it applicable so you can take the best next step forward. So, Joel is CEO at Veep Nutrition System. He's author of two best selling books, The Immunity Code and Peak Human, and author of the very first article on the gut microbiome in the realms of health and fitness. He's a true OG. He has the largest known body of outcomes in the world targeting body composition via the gut with over 16,000 outcomes since 2009. He created one of the first digital nutrition SAAS services with the Veep Nutrition System, has consulted with billion-dollar nutrition companies like Quest Nutrition on complex problems like engineering food to extend lifespan, and his work has been featured on Dr. Phil and top-tier publications like Muscle and Fitness and CBS Online. He's- like I said, an OG self-experimenter that's been playing around with what today is considered some of the most popular diet fitness trends. And throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, he was one of the first self-experimenters messing around with fasting, MCTs, gut bacteria, and the AMPK pathway for peak fitness and performance. In 2008, his website, lookcut Dot com hit number two on Google for weight loss with over one thousand original articles that contain what are now some of the most viral trends in nutrition and most importantly he's the fittest fifty something year old I've ever seen he's the one who got me sprinting faster before my deadlifts to stimulate a hunt digging into PubMed articles on lean phenotypes hypoxia training for sleep etc 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 and today's episode man we touch on so many different subjects from personality types with MBTI to gut bacteria to (laughs) insulin models, young muscle, all kinds of supplements, morning routines, stillness, philosophy. (laughs) We we really go into so much. So uh, yeah, hope you guys can stick around until the end. Hope that you enjoy the show and huge thanks and a big hug to uh, Joel for joining us. Can't wait to dig into his book, The Immunity Code. Having him back on to pick his brain a little more. So, if you guys have any questions or topics you want to touch upon in the next one, be sure to let me know between now, June 1st, and the next month or two. And yeah, we'd love to answer some of your questions. So, anyway, with all that, I hope you guys enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side. Ladies and gentlemen, the folks at Buy have done it again. They've just released their new and improved formula for Magnesium Breakthrough, the most powerful magnesium supplement on the market today. This product was already amazing, but BioOptimizers has continued to research and improve it. And this new fourth-generation formula means Magnesium Breakthrough is now even more potent and effective for reducing stress, improving sleep, and boosting energy levels. And if you've already taken Magnesium Breakthrough... You'll want to try the new formula as soon as you can because it now includes cofactors like B6 and manganese that help with the absorption of magnesium. And if you've never tried Magnesium Breakthrough before, now is the perfect time to try it, and here's why. For the deepest healing of many health problems, Dr. Mark Circus says there is going to be only one answer, and that answer is magnesium. And why does he say that? Well, there's two very important reasons. First, magnesium is involved in 80% of the body's metabolic reactions. And second, about 75% of people are not getting enough magnesium. This is a much bigger problem than most people think because when you don't get enough magnesium, you suffer from poor sleep, low energy, and even higher stress levels. And in every bottle of magnesium breakthrough, we will get seven unique forms of organic full spectrum magnesium, which can dramatically improve your health. It can help you sleep longer and deeper. Help you reduce stress levels and feel more calm. It'll give you abundant all day energy to win at life. And because it supports mental awareness, magnesium breakthrough can help you to finally feel like yourself again. Simply taking two capsules before you go to bed, and you'll be amazed by the improvements in your mood and energy levels. And how much more rested you feel when you wake up. You'll feel refreshed, like new. And for an exclusive offer from my listeners, you can go to magbreakthrough.com slash undress and use code undress, A-N-D-R-E-S, during checkout to save 10% and get free shipping. Oh, and one last thing. If you want your loved ones to be healthier, consider giving them the gift of Magnesium Breakthrough for Mother's Day, Father's Day, or even a spring birthday. Again, that special link is magbreakthrough.com slash undress. That's M A G B R E A K T H R O U ghcom slash undress. One more time, magbreakthrough.com slash undress, A-N-D-R-E-S. Use code undress during checkout. Save 10% and get free shipping. That's all for now, folks. Have an amazing rest of your day. Hope you enjoy some good sleep and some nice, calm energy with your magnesium. Mr. Joel Green, here we are. We're back. It's yes, to meet you again this happen. time. This time with all your podcasting gear, your new mic. Yeah, it looks good. Looks like we're ready to go this time.
1: Yes, we are. Yeah, after a couple of bordered attempts.
0: <laughs> Last time we spoke, you had sort of diagnosed me my personality type, MBTI personality type as an INTJ, and I did some more research. Discovered I am in fact an INTJ A, the assertive type. Then I did the Enneagram test three wing two, all that good stuff. Also link to this show notes for anyone that's interested, but I made a, a really particular discovery. That's that my girlfriend is an ENTJ. And actually we looked into this, there's a website, it's called 16personalities.com. I believe it's what it's called or .org. I'm not sure. But what we discovered is that if you scroll to the bottom, you'll see like celebrities and public figures that that have your personality type, that share your personality type. And it turns out, that Michelle Obama is an INTJ like myself. Barack Obama is an ENTJ and they're a power couple, right? And then you've got Walter White from Breaking Bad who is an INTJ and then his wife is an ENTJ. And so we found these two power couples and then we just like looked at each other and were like, this is perfect. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's just about the perfect fit.
0: Yeah. And you were just telling me that you are in fact an ENTJ. So maybe we can start yes. there. If you can tell folks a little more about what that means and how it's useful
1: yeah so th- those of you that many of you are probably really familiar with the mbti but uh, for those of you that aren't it's essentially a mapping of personality types based on things that are actually if you think about them they're fairly easy to quantify the simplest mapping would be extroversion versus introversion and it's not so much about your gregariousness. It's more about how you recharge. So typically, like extroverts get their energy from people and introverts will get their energy from being alone, alone time. But both can go both ways. And then the next is intuition versus sensory. So like, basically, do you really rely on intuition or do you rely more on what you can sense, what you can see? And then there's thinking versus feeling. Do you tend to be like a, you know, somebody who makes a pros and cons column or do you tend to be like a gut feeling and then decisions like do you tend to want to have your decisions done and off your plate or do you want to leave your options open so those are those are kind of like the broad categories and then we're all have little bits of of different aspects of those but most of us kind of dominate in one sphere or another and then across life you can change a little bit but generally kind of the typing holds, what I've found is it's extremely useful in business, very useful in business because the typings hold very true. And once you've done it long enough, it takes you about 20 seconds and you can read someone and it's usually pretty accurate. So I'm an ENTJ, which is uh, extroverted intuition thinking. And your ENTJs definitely fit a distinct type. Um, they're, They're very fun to be around. They're very much talkers. You typically find them involved in somewhere where they have to share ideas. They love to share ideas and they love the big ideas and they love, you know, they're not that concerned with, uh, they like to delegate the execution. And so like, yeah, your Barack Obama is one, your George Clooney is another. You're thinking of like a Rush Limbaugh or an Alex Jones. Those are ENTJs. So very much their idea people. And they're very good at speaking usually. And then their perfect match usually is the INTJ, which is called the mastermind, quote unquote. Uh, So INTJs. They're very tactical, and they're very good at creating and solving problems, like creating new things, new solutions to problems. They think outside. Both the NTJs, the NTs in general, think outside the box.
0: They call them the the architects, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And their best matchup typically is going to be someone who
0: has that N,
1: who has the N, the intuition, because then... Which you'll hear a lot in conversation with two ends is interesting, fascinating. Yes. I was thinking about so they have extroverted ideation. Their ideas they have to get out of their head. And that's not, that's not, you know, most people have introverted ideation. They keep their ideas in their head. So and the typologies are they're fun, they're interesting. They can be scary accurate at times. Yeah, I find them very useful.
0: Yeah, it's been real cool going down that rabbit hole and seeing yeah. my strengths and weaknesses like right before my eyes. You know, mm-hmm. it kind of puts you on the spot when you're reading through it and you know that, it's, that that's your personality type. You know, for example, like I've always expressed to my girlfriend because she's very familiar with, you know, the nature of my business and what I do and how I accomplish what I set out to accomplish. And I've always told her like, you know, it's all strategy. I'm always thinking so many steps ahead. And I think that it really right. helped to cover my ass in so many yeah. situations. And yeah. reading this, it just made perfect sense. But then actually, you know, you have your strengths and you have your, your weaknesses, Too right. Right. So if we look at some of the weaknesses of an of an INTJ, in my case, you know we can be perfectionists. We can be very competitive. Sometimes we can be unintentionally manipulative. I think that comes with having a a strategy that just makes sense to you, and you almost disregard emotions for logic. You know, and so anyway, I, I recommend anybody tuning in definitely check that out. We'll link to it in the show notes. Thank you for taking us through such a such a thorough you know description. And let me ask you this. Let's piggyback off of the the personality types. How do you feel that this has been useful to you in your business, in your career? How do you apply this knowledge?
1: Well, it's useful in a lot of ways. One, probably the principle is it gives you a sense what I would call more of an internal confirmation for like what you're quote unquote destined to do. you know like like you really do kind of have a shape. you really do have kind of like you know predilections and things that you're you know, innately in tune for, innately wired for. And so once you kind of understand those typologies and the personalities that go with them, usually they they give you a fairly good reading of what those types tend to, where you tend to find them. And, you know, it's not like it's telling you what you're going to be good at. It's kind of more or less confirming what you already knew that you were good at, you know. And so I think it's very useful in sort of helping you find your lane and helping you cement, like, kind of the things that you should do and the things you shouldn't do. So, like, as an ENTJ, you know, really... The main thing for me is ideas and getting ideas out into the world and big plans and executing at the highest level to make big changes to things. And that's kind of what I've done. You know, like I'm kind of getting to the culmination of about 16 years of effort with what I'm doing in in nutrition, which was to solve one problem, which is the biggest problem possible. And that's an ENTJ thing. it's okay, you know, like ignore the minors, go right after the very biggest thing. Elon Musk is an ENTJ. Go after the very biggest thing and then delegate, delegate everything. And so, like in, in my case, Case where I'm going to get into the weeds and get in trouble is if I'm doing the delegation. That's where this particular personality type just gets in trouble because they're much better at the sort of like big picture than they are the execution. They can do the execution, they're just, it doesn't come from the core of who you are. And so you're always draining yourself to do that side of things. And so what it'll tell you is like the things that you're really good at are not draining to you. You know they're things you really get energized by, and then other aspects of the business, things that are draining to you, those are just things other people are better suited for like my my wife and I have this ongoing like laugh about the i s t j personality, which is like as far from me as you could get and they can be very difficult for this particular personality set to deal with because they just, you know, they're they're just exactly the opposite, but they're hugely necessary. Like you find them when you need certain like areas of business done. They're the perfect fit for that. And, you know, that's like, oh, I need an ISTJ for that.
0: <laughs> they're more of like the doers than the thinkers, you mean?
1: Not so much the thinkers. They're the ones who will execute.
0: They're more doers than thinkers. Yeah, they're yeah, yeah. more focused on the execution rather than the actual fundamental plan or strategy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They'll go and they love to check those boxes off and gives them a sense of accomplishment, knocking them down. You know, like... To me, that's irrelevant. It's like it's relevant, but it's not. Let's focus on the big thing. And so, and it also helps you a lot in business dealings. So, when you quickly learn to recognize like personality types, like you understand, like an ISTJ is going to hear like something I'm saying and think of it as just some big, schmaltzy sales pitch, it's going to turn them off. So, you kind of learn how to position yourself to personality types, not to change who you are, but just to tailor your tailor whatever you're saying or doing to the type so yeah i I found it's very very useful it's very applicable surprisingly so
0: i definitely want to take this as an invitation again to anyone tuning in you know make sure to check out 16 personalities this is not you know sponsorship or anything it's just right genuinely it ties into the concept of the what we're trying to accomplish with this podcast right it's knowing your physiology and all this is deeply rooted in in psychology and sociology and such so we do invite you to check it out. So let's back up before we get into the business end of things and really more what you're accomplishing in your field, you know, after 16 years of hard work, what you've accomplished and what you look forward to accomplishing, can we back up? and can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Because I know that you know it, it wasn't like you were you grew up with success all around you and, <laughs> and, and accomplishment all around you. You had a, yeah. a rough upbringing, and, and I'm wondering how that challenge has helped you develop this endurance today. So if you can tell us a little bit about what that was like.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, It's it's Most people are usually pretty surprised to hear that about me. Like, you know, they think I'm some spoiled kid or something. And no, I spent the first seven years of my life in a black ghetto. Like, we were the only white family living in a black housing project. And we were poor. I mean, my mom was, you know, just basically a poor Spanish, you know, had no... You know, skill sets really uh, other than house cleaning. And, you know, she had three boys. One of them had Down syndrome, a single mom. And by the time I was seven, I had seen. You know, my mom nearly beaten to death in in front of me in the street. I had, you know, we used to have roving gangs kicking our door open. You know, we didn't have a phone, didn't have food a lot. Yeah. You know, I kind of, I just, I really like was kind of way behind the starting line. You know, all the things that you grow up with thinking are just normal, like furniture and food and a car and a phone. We didn't have any of that stuff. You know, we were just poor, just like super poor. So, we moved around a lot and then I got somewhat stable by about the time I got to high school. I managed to go to the same high school, you know, all four years. But I didn't have any, you know, like one of the things you, when you come from that background is you're missing all of the day to day coaching that, that a parent will put into place with a child. For example, my niece just got a job in Silicon Valley and she had me coaching her every step of the way. Like, you know, okay, it's a startup. Here's what you're going to expect. You're going to be working crazy hours. They're going to push you. I want you to prepare yourself for that. Okay. When you negotiate for this, do that. You know, there was all this coaching. I didn't have any of that. So what I had was I, for whatever the reason, developed pretty quickly intellectually, like as a kid. So I started reading like at about three. And then I just read voraciously, I read everything I'd get my hands on. And so I was reading, you know, novels by first, second grade. And comic books and i kind of grew up in that world so i kind of just really grew up you know just reading a ton and it probably saved me in a lot of ways because uh, books are ideas and i was exposed to so many ideas and ways of thinking because i read so much so early on that i think it had a big influence on me like it probably probably you know could be dead or a lot of other not so great things but i was also also really into athletics growing up too so my mom like really the one thing she understood was you know like when you're in the ghetto the way out is athletics <laughs> so and i was a really skinny kid so i got into like running and track and field and in the 5th grade like i used to just go to the blacktop every day in the summer and just do sprints trying to get faster cuz i wanted to be fast i didn't You know, and that was one of those things where it just kind of was always there. So I was really into athletics uh, at an early age, just always like walking around on my hands, doing, you know, gymnastics. And and I started lifting weights like in fourth grade. We had no weights, so I I took a, a hammock that we had and I just tore it apart and started working out with that and started, you know, going to the gym, doing Olympic lifts at 12, 13. So, so that was kind of my world. I wasn't really like academically strong. I didn't have anything, you know, kind of behind me there. I was always bright. Like I would test like pretty well, you know, when it, anything that had to do with language, I tested really, really well. Like always, always at the always like probably top one or top two people in any class. And then I was horrible in math. Like I, I was like really behind the curve. Ironically, what happened to me was at one point, I just sort of realized like, that, you know, I wasn't controlling my focus. And that had been my problem all these years. And, and I saw math as a language. And I just suddenly the lights went on. And then within a year, I was tutoring calculus. in that. So I was fortunate enough, though, I think in high school to, I grew up in San Jose for my high school years. And I was fortunate enough to, to have friends who were, you know, their parents were in the professional class. So they were like, you know, attorneys, My my girlfriend in high school, her dad was an attorney, and I was around all this stuff. And so I kind of sponged as much as I could get from that. And, you know, I, I developed some goals early on, like I like I was going to go to college, you know, and I was going to go to a UC, you know, not the regular state school, but a UC, you know, and I was going to figure a way to do that. So I didn't have a way to pay for college. So I wound up taking this summer job selling books door to door where you worked um, 80 hours a week on straight commission, six days a week. You'd start knocking on doors at eight in the morning, finish up nine ten at night, you know. And they would send you like to you know Nashville for a week of training, and then they would send you to some obscure town in the middle of nowhere where there's nothing to do but work. So like my first summer, <laughs> I worked in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, and it was just like a, a dying mill town, and you know I just worked my butt off. But and I did okay. I was really overcoming a lot of things in life, and what helped me a lot was. I remember the very first door I ever knocked on, this guy just screamed at me and slammed the door in my face. And then like, you know, I went into this thing of like, I'm not going to be able to do this. And then, you know, like in a microsecond, then I won't be able to pay for college. Then I won't have it, you know, and then I'm not going to, and I just got like really determined. And I just, you know, and I pushed, then I just started running to the next door and just ran the whole day, you know, and I wound up doing great. I made like a bunch of money that day. And So I think for me, what helped a lot was because I had so many hard times growing up that things that were really hard, typically didn't bother me. Like I had a lot of resilience, a lot of endurance, you know, and that kind of like, that was something that I think just, you know, you can't really, maybe you can teach it. I don't know. I just, I learned it the hard way and just the ability to, you know, whatever's happening to problem solve and to look for solutions and look for a way out and all that. And that was kind of like a big part of like, you know, me growing up. So, typically, one of the things you take for granted, particularly in this age, is that parents are very affirming, you know, it's it's the, you know, you're awesome generation. I didn't have any of that. We had the exact opposite of that. And it was like, you know, my mom was dealing with a lot of mental illness, and it was crazy. And so, you know, my self-concept started from, like, didn't start at the line, it started at miles and back of the line. And... I had to like really just overcome a lot of things by just achieving and by doing and by like, you know, I went from thinking I couldn't do one thing to being able to excel at it. And that really shaped me a lot, I think, because somewhere along the way, what I figured out was that I could master any idea. There wasn't any, any idea I couldn't master if I applied myself to it. It didn't matter what it was. And I also along the way, kind of shifted from kind of just placing blind trust in authority figures to pretty much the same thing would happen a lot of the time where I would just start to learn what that authority figure knew. And then I would learn it as good as them, you know, sometimes better. And I'd realize, they kind of know some things and don't really have it all figured out. And so I learned to think for myself and learn to rely on, on my own conclusions a lot. And that's the thing that's very different, I think, from what you find nowadays. I don't really... I don't really buy into anything that's official. I just like to do my own research and form my own conclusions and usually takes me to a place that's the opposite of what the common belief about any given thing would be. But I think it's just that ability to believe in yourself that you can master any idea, any subject, any piece of there's nothing I'm afraid of. I'm not afraid of like quantum physics, I'm not afraid of particle physics. I'm not afraid of, you know, stochastics. I'm not afraid of any of those things because I just know that I just need to
0: apply myself a couple hours a day and I could master that, you know. So it's it's like that deficit in terms of judgment and wisdom early on in life taught you to rely on yourself and to learn directly from sources that had been refined, that had been looked over, that had been mastered. And so you carry this with you from an early age and you know you get to the point now where you look to master these things yourself and to gain the knowledge yourself. And disregard the authority, and so do, would you say it's that deficit early on that has carried you through? Is it is it the reason why you feel so motivated to learn these things on your own?
1: I just evolved eventually to this place of inventorying whatever somebody's saying, and okay, I'll inventory that, I'll take a look at it, but pretty much knowing that if I dive into that myself that I'm going to come to my own conclusions on it. And very often, they're the opposite of what you might think on a given subject. And yeah, so with what I do in the world of you know that I'm in, people will ask me a lot, like, well, how, how'd you get all this? Where'd you, where'd you learn all this? And it was just really out of necessity. Like, I never saw myself as, you know, like some information source. I never saw, I just really saw myself as a consumer. A consumer who... Is consuming information from experts, and then I would do that, and then later on, I would get five, six years down the road, and realize that that guy didn't know what he was really talking about, and because I'm really hurting now from doing that thing that he told me to do, you know, ah, it didn't work, and so I just, particularly in this in this endeavor, began to really like dive into doing the research myself, and just not even reading books, but just going to what the papers say, and just, and I've always been a really good reader, so you know, I had the ability to just digest massive amounts of like science garble very fast. And so that was like, for me, something I think that helped a lot. It's helped me, I think, you know, in terms of what I've done with all this stuff that I'm doing, you know, for sure. So.
0: And as far as dealing with the, you know, the weaknesses that any personality has, how have you dealt with those? Oh,
1: gosh, mostly just a lot of stumbling and bumbling. You know, I'll I'll tell you, like, When you're young, you go through an interesting arc where you're really trying to prove things to yourself. You're trying to prove that you're smart or you're the smartest guy in the room or you're capable or you're this or you're that. And then, you know, once you've lived long enough, you realize like you kind of suck at a lot of things and you're good at it, you know, that personal illusion. I don't need to maintain that at all anymore. Like I don't need to think that, you know, I'm this or I'm that or I'm good at this or I'm good at that. That's not that's not in my wherewithal anymore. It's it's more like I'm the older I get, I realize I'm good at a very few things, maybe even fewer than I realized. And then everything else is just purely providence. You know, it's just purely like realizing I'm pretty inept at a lot of these things and God, I need your help and just relying on God a lot. That's, that's been a big part of it for me. And it works. <laughs> it works every time. Rely on God. Yeah, absolutely.
0: You know, if I can quickly jump in, I just want to describe an experience and I'd love to get your take the other day. I decided it'd be fun to, I don't typically drink alcohol and and when I do it's it's red wine. I was at a restaurant, I had three glasses of wine. I felt really good and I was like, why don't I go ahead and tell my Instagram community and start asking me questions. And someone asked me what I think about God and the universe and such. And I don't want to go too far down the travel hole because we could spend hours talking about this, but essentially what it came down to was this woman reached out and she gave me her take on my opinion, which was, you know. Apparently, very egocentric. It's like you know, you do the right things, the right things will come to you. God and the universe will take care of you. And she told me, no, it's more about what you do, how it impacts others, and collectively, you know, how we serve a greater purpose. God, Jesus, etc. Then I told her, hey, you know what? Why don't we set up a conversation? You told me a little bit about the Holy Spirit and God, and and by the way, I was raised primarily Jewish. I'm, I'm Jewish, right? And so, anyway, there was all these ideas that we were sort of going back and forth about, and. I was able to gain somewhat of an understanding of what she meant by this collective experience. And that leads me to this question. You know, you say God has taken care of you. How do you think your work has helped take care of more people? And how do you think that has impacted you? You describe how, you know, you're the guy coming up with the ideas, Mm -hmm. right? You're behind the Mm -hmm. scenes coming up with these ideas. How do you think your ideas have served you? And how do you think the positive reinforcement from those ideas has really helped you sort of continue on this path of you know, massive success throughout the years. I mean, for those
1: of you not familiar, I wrote this book. It's called The Immunity Code. When I look at that book and like I even now I'll go back and pour through it and I'm like, this thing is beyond genius. Like there's levels to this thing here I never saw, didn't even see until now. And it's like I wrote it but I didn't like
0: I know exactly what you're describing.
1: Like there's a genius there it's so deep and hit so many levels, I couldn't have come up with it. Meaning like, okay, me, the person in my brain came up with it, but the program running in my brain was like, you know, a download. Okay. Let's put it that way.
0: Okay. <laughs> this is You're giving me goosebumps. <laughs> I just had a conversation about this with uh, Dr. David Rabin. Yeah. He's the uh, chief science officer of Apollo. I'm sure you're familiar. And we talked about how it's like, you're able to channel in this energy, these downloads, when you take care of yourself, you're on a purpose-driven path and you get this insight, like the words come from nowhere seemingly and they come down and, you know, pen hits paper and you're just like channeling this energy. So what does it take for you personally to channel this kind of energy and this kind of genius? What are some habits that you enable that help you get there?
1: I think number one is humility. Like number one is that, you know, you have to it's a hard place I think for most most people in this day and age to get to which is to come to a position where you really appreciate and I'll only speak for myself but that on my own I can't do very much you know like I can check all the boxes I can you know have all the right slogans and do all the right things and you know take massive action and do all the Tony Robbins stuff but like on my own there's it's not going to bear a lot of fruit you know it just isn't and the way you know that is when you're Doing something and you're just grinding away at it, you know, but it's not bearing fruit over time, then the best way to put it is there's no favor on what you're doing. Okay. And you can do everything you think is right. You can, you can check all the boxes. You can manifest what you can do all that junk. It's not gonna have favor. Um, so I think that when you're in a place where you kind of they answered the most basic question in life, the number one fundamental question, which is who's in charge. Okay. That's the first question that has to be answered in life because it dictates your life. Who's in charge? So, the way you answer that question will dictate your existence. You know, if you think that you're in charge, then you'll paper your existence based on that idea. If you think God's in charge, then suddenly, you know, if he's in charge and that makes me his property. And so, everything comes from that. Like, like, so I'm really just asking for direction. I'm asking for help. I'm And I'm asking for, you know, favor. I'm asking... For not not my will, but his, all those things start to come into play. That gets in the way for a lot of people. It gets in the way of me being in charge you know, and so that 's why the number one thing is humility because humility is i 'm not really in charge you know i 'm not actually in charge um, god 's in charge it 's his stuff it 's his planet it 's his, his everything, and so okay, it changes the equation completely. So I think that's a big piece of it. And then it's really just focus, you know, like massive focus. Like, I've always had a really good ability to focus, like to to kind of get into a place where literally, a, you know, a glass could shatter in the room and I wouldn't hear it because I'm so focused on what I'm doing. And in that place, you'll find a lot of ideas come to you when you're really just, everything else is completely blocked out and you're really focused, then you'll find a lot of things come in, a lot of ideas come to you, you know.
0: What are some things that you do to create this focus?
1: I think an important aspect of that is rest so that you're not burned out. It's very easy, like your type of personality, my type of personality, it's very easy to just grind 24-7, you know, because relentlessness kind of comes with the territory, you're relentless. And being relentless is a great quality. You know, you can accomplish much by being relentless, but you have to know when Your ability to produce at a given level is, you know, some percentage less than what it could be because you're just burnt out and you have to recharge, take time off, you know, just kind of get into a place of being recharged and rested. And I find that I can focus much better when I'm, you know, rested, when I'm not, or when I'm kind of burnt out. I've just spent too much time focusing on too many little things that I just get distracted much easier, you know. And that's really just the other part of our brain looking for, you know, pleasure reward and the reward circuits of the brain, you know. So I think that's a big piece of it. And then the early mornings are the other piece. Like, you know, from 5 a.m. to, you know, nine, ten a.m. in the morning is like a magic four or five hours, you know, where like the bulk of productivity, I think, gets done there. And the bulk of creativity gets done there. And there's physiological reasons why that's true. So you can make a really good argument that the purpose of sleep is to repeat, replete ATP. And that ATP is the currency of existence. And that what sleep does is it replenishes and and charges up our ATP stores. So, they're at maximum when you wake up. And then that ATP is needed for every single thing that's going on in your brain, every single thing to make the proteins themselves that drive higher cognition. So, that's a big piece of it too, is the early mornings I found.
0: So, I definitely want to pick some of this apart. First thing I want to ask you is how do you know when you're burnt out? How do you know when it's time to rest? What are some signs? Are you looking at your biometrics? Are you meditating and reflecting? How do you know when you've hit that wall?
1: I think that when you're not moving the chains forward in terms of whatever it is you're trying to do sometimes, ideas just aren't coming. The creative power just isn't coming. A lot of our ability to produce at a high level is physical. It really is. You know and that's what you see with what you see with age is this decline in the ability to create to produce, but it's physical in its nature you know it's driven by drops in testosterone, drops in mitochondrial productivity, drops in all these things so the physical part of you has to be sort of like in peak shape to perform at a peak level and so the older I get, the more I really really take that seriously that you know i can't produce anything at a high level unless i'm rested and well and you know like in a very optimum place physically and the physical aspects will drive all of the production and all that other stuff so
0: and just to you know from my personal experience i'm also as you said i'm also someone that is is relentless and a lot of the work that i do is comes from a wave of inspiration mm-hmm. that sometimes is completely just yeah. unpredictable And I'm relentless in pursuing that inspiration when it arrives. Absolutely. So if it's one in the morning and I'm in bed getting ready to go to sleep, I had a late night, and then I get one idea, I'm like, I'm bouncing off the bed and I'm gonna put that on paper somewhere. At least even if it's a nugget that will remind me to pursue that the next day. But like I will never let a good idea dwindle. Yeah. Like like never, ever, ever, ever. All my ideas are written down somewhere. Like my most valuable asset, beyond my family, my loved ones, is like my notes, you know. So I hope there's no like hackers here that secretly hate me when I, you know, hack my computer, take my notes. Cause that's my number one most valuable thing is my notes, my voice recordings. And okay, so that's great. Do you ever look at biometrics? Do you ever look at biometrics like HRV, for example, to determine when you need to capitalize on rest or when you need to get more sleep or when you t- need to take a nap? Or is it more like intuitive?
1: More intuitive, yeah. I do once in a while, but not, not that much. I'm much more intuitive. Like, I really know my body, and I really know. And it's interesting you say, you know, yeah, those waves of inspiration when they come, I've learned over the years that, you know, you're waiting for those. It's like a surfer, and you're waiting for the, oh, yeah. for the wave. And when it's there, you've got to be ready. And my wife uh, has an ongoing joke about that, because when they hit me, like, she calls it like, and she has some other ENTG friends, they do the same thing. And it's like, her face goes like
0: this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> <sighs> If for those for those who aren't watching the podcast, <laughs> aren't seeing the video and are, and are tuning in, imagine a caveman discovering fire. That's the face that Joel just made. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's that face. And so when that face happens, you've got to be ready to write it down because you will forget it. You know, and uh, yeah, some of my best stuff, I, I'm like you, I have like the notes when, you know, when they come down. And yeah, it's very important. You know, we don't get in life an inexhaustible supply of those. Like it's very much like, got to grab stuff when it comes along. Yeah, so I've, I've learned to really like be aware of those when they come, yeah, for sure.
0: This is a health and wellness podcast, but I'm and I'm not recommending this, but there is a sort of unhealthy habit that I'll admit to, but it's helped me with some of my best ideas. And it's sometimes I'm in the car on a long drive and when it's safe, let's say I have the car on autopilot, which my car can do and there's no cars around. Or if my girlfriend's next to me, I'll have her do it. It's to just tap the voice memo button on my phone, on my iPhone, and I'll just kind of talk. And I find that, you know, I get this sort of feeling, these ideas whenever I'm fully present, you know, so that can be a lot of times when I'm on a long, on a long drive, when I'm in the shower, I take really long showers. I like to I think and look down, you know, yeah, so, I love to, yeah. my girlfriend gives me so much shit. She's like, Hey, you're taking a, like what are you doing in there? Like you're taking so long. And I'm like, I'm literally just thinking or when I'm about to go to sleep, when I wake up in the morning, especially meditation, and you mentioned, which I definitely want to come back to this, meditation in the early morning, so that 5 to 9 a.m. window, I find that that's just like magical, because I'll put it this way, like if I'm taking time to pursue a hobby, let's say I'm spearfishing, I'm in the water, I'm doing that during work hours, like I know in the back of my head, I could be doing something productive for my business, I could be talking to clients, I could be online, etc. cetera, but at 5 a.m., No one's counting on me. Those are not work hours. There's nothing. It's like I can just meditate, be clear, channel some of this energy, get really good ideas down. Yeah, I mean, that's just magical. Do you have a particular routine early morning that you follow to get into that flow? Or is it just like a matter of waking up and attacking, you know, putting ideas down? Like, how does that work early mornings?
1: Yeah. So, My ideal routine
0: is I'll get up like around
1: five and then I will go hit the supplement cabinet and I'll take some nicotinamide mononucleotide typically just to get the spark going.
0: Just for the people that are tuning in that are not familiar with NMN, can we just make it clear? It's not nicotine. It's nicotinamide mononucleotide. So for those who aren't familiar, I just wanted to clear that up there. So yeah, Yeah. go for it.
1: So it is an NAD precursor and... (laughs) When you're depleted of NAD, nothing's going to work right in the body. You need NAD to make energy and you need to do lots of things. And NMN, especially if you didn't get a great night's sleep, it helps to give you the NAD that your body needs to make the energy, to make the proteins, to do all this stuff. So typically, the first thing I'll do is I'll hit that. I'll have, sometimes I'll mix in some molecular hydrogen, or very often I'll mix in some ketones, really just stuff for, you know, to charge the brain. And then I'll go and I'll typically try and take about 45 minutes and just go sit outside and just be still and just, you know, be with God and just try and be still. It's really that we live in an age right now where addiction is ever present in terms of like we're all to varying degrees, you know, addicted to these dopamine hits from electronics and from stimulation and it didn't exist 30 years ago. And so stillness is like the rarest commodity, now. And it's in, in stillness and silence. That's where all the answers are. And so it's very hard to be still because your mind is running to all the stuff you got to do. So the best time to be still is in the morning before the day starts and before you start to think about all this, all this stuff. So I like to go and just be still and listen, listen a lot. And, and then from there, I'll usually start my day.
0: So let's take it back to the supplements because I'm sure a lot of people are, are very curious about the specifics. So for NMN, is there a particular brand? Is it, Do you always combine it with a sirtuin like resveratrol? You know, Is there anything else in there in the NMN supplement that you appreciate?
1: Part of what I do is I created this way to eat called uh, the Immunity Code Diet, or you call it 2-Day Core. And it revolves around stimulating gut bacteria one day to potentiate all the mechanisms of fasting and all the, and the sirtuins and all these things that we want to stimulate, but to kind of supercharge those the next day. And so it depends on the day of the week. I work in an alternating strategy where typically Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, that's the day that I'm really focusing more on like supplements and small molecules. And I run different stacks depending on my intuition and depending on how much I've done. I don't ever do the same thing all the time. I'm always mixing things up. One thing that the longer you've done this stuff, you'll see is that everything works kind of in a reverse sine wave. So you'll get this sort of like bump, the first, you know, the initial going of anything. And then the more you do that same thing over time, it goes below the x-axis and then you start to see negatives over time. So in order to kind of like mitigate that, I have a lot of different stacks of things that I do. So it just depends on the outcome I'm looking for. But like, typical example might be I will stack uh, berberine with resveratrol, NMN, and apigenin.
0: I was about to say Epigenin. I noticed that on your Instagram the other day. Yeah.
1: That and ketones um, in the AM. I'll do that. Like That's one stack I might use.
0: Ketones are using like a, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Ketone, ketone, a. ketone
1: aid. Yeah. Yeah. Ketone Frank's <laughs> ketone aid. Yeah.
0: I had Frank on the show a little while back and I, his stuff before a podcast is like, and before great. sleep is like, oh my God. That's so, great. So
1: I'll do kind of that stack and that'll be like kind of my AM what I call small molecule stack. And the purpose of that is, so between going after the gut bacteria the day before, and then adding in the small molecules, we're just, think of it as a throttle. We're just really opening up the throttle on all of these different processes in the body that we want to give a little bit of uh, jet fuel to periodically. And the net of all these things is that you don't have to fast as long. And you're regularly inducing in things like autophagy, ubiquination, um, the cert pathways and the incretins, GIP, GLP one, all these like you know big acronyms for things. You're turning those things up on a regular basis, and so that's
0: one stack. For those who aren't familiar with what these mechanisms are, can you maybe just give us a an overview of what they do? You know, how are these beneficial? So our bodies,
1: our cells. The best way to think of cells is that they're essentially a merger between computers, 3D printers, power plants, and buildings. Like their structure, but they produce energy, they make things, and they are involved in you know talking to each other and and all this really advanced communication. So it's kind of like cells are essentially computers, they really process a lot of information, and they make a lot of decisions they have to make very important decisions about things like you know should we go on, should we stop, should we divide, should we turn on the trash so what research over the last ten years has given really good credence to is that. There's some basic things that probably help us to age better, probably help us to live a little bit longer. And many of them have to do with either taking out the cellular trash, which we call that either uh, the ubiquitin proteasome pathway, or we call that autophagy. So it's either that or has to do with helping your DNA to transcribe and copy better. Okay. And that goes by a lot of different words. You can call that HDAC inhibition, methylation. You know, there's different forms of that. But basically, as we get older, DNA starts to lose bits of information. And so then you're making these really poor copies. And then those poor copies translate into not being able to make the proteins your body needs to make in order to maintain the machine. So that's a big thing. And then there are these key signal pathways that sort of work as master regulators. And the one that most people are now getting somewhat familiar with is the, is the AMPK pathway and, and the sirtuins. And so, the sirtuins are HDAC inhibitors. They have a lot to do with making DNA read better, but they intertwine with this longevity pathway called AMPK, A-M-P-K. And long story short, it all revolves around energy production in the cell. So, cells... Need to produce energy at a certain level, and they have all these advanced sensors in them. One of them is what's called a heterotrimeric sensor. It's a three-pronged sensor, and it sticks in the cell membrane. and The first one senses ATP, the next senses ADP, and the third senses AMP. So that's just adenosine triphosphate, diphosphate, monophosphate. Yeah. And so when the gas tank gets low, the meter for AMP fires off, and essentially what it does is it tells the cell to start recycling spare parts for energy so that, you know, we can keep the lights on. And there's benefit to that. There's benefits to taking the trash out. Like if you let the trash pile up around your house, eventually, you know, it wouldn't be a great place to live. But if you, if you take the trash out on a regular basis, then the house functions normally. And so that's the best way to understand it is a lot of these pathways just converge on maintenance really is, is a good good way to understand it. And we can turn those on by different things. We have some basic things that will allow us to go at those things. One of those is the bacteria in our gut. So certain bacteria talk to human genes and help to activate these different pathways. Species of bifidobacteria, for example, will activate the sirtuins or AMPK. And so the bacteria in our gut help to potentiate the right bacteria, help to potentiate longevity. They turn on human longevity genes. And then in conjunction with that, the diurnal rhythm that we live in lends itself out to certain times of the day doing certain things better than others. Like you tend to sleep better at night, right? Well, you tend to repair better at night. And that's because a lot of machinery is going off. And so if we combine a few things like hunger, fasting, uh, the right bacteria, these small molecules we're talking about, and then a few other things like cold and exercise, then we come up with a pretty decent little basic formula to give the body regular inputs of this on a regular basis. Like I do it about three times a week. I'll stack all those things together and just kind of give my body a little dose of that. Okay. I don't do it all the time. You can do harm by doing this stuff all the time. So it's really about understanding what goes into it and how often to apply it, what, when, and how. And what, when, and how gets you sort of the optimal like, level on the throttle. It's kind of like your car. Like you, know, you don't want to run around in your car with the thing floored all the time. Okay, like you're going to burn the battery out, you're going to wear the engine out. But every now and then, it's really good to, you know, throw the throttle down, like it keeps the plugs clean, it clears the carbon out of the cylinders, you know, it helps the it's, it's good. So understanding that we can influence our rate of aging through some very simple things, and then taking that a level up and understanding that when to apply these things and the frequency is kind of like a brand new thing, five years new for most people in their awareness and that's kind of what i've been you know really in the middle of is pushing out a system to help people do that kind of stuff so
0: well that's a great way to take people through that process and to gain appreciation towards the different levels that there are and of course you know you know we were talking about this this morning routine and how you do this three times a week you know what are you doing the other four days mm-hmm. is there something that will complement the stack, or is it just sort of like a minimalist approach to recover from the Mm -hmm. stack? You know, what are you doing the rest of the remainder of those days? Yeah.
1: So I'm always working in a two-day split, always. Like never not doing that. Okay. And the first day is leaning more in my diet towards having more like fibers and starches, key fibers and starches in my diet, okay? And then the the other day, the next day, is lean towards not having any any of that stuff in my diet, just leaning more towards not having carbs in the diet. And that's the foundation to understand what we're doing, which is one of the most important control mechanisms over aging is insulin. Um, Insulin controls the body's growth signals. It controls, insulin is like the accelerator on aging. Okay, it's accelerating on growth. If we were to map out the inside of a cell and what happens when you bring sugar in a cell and all the different machines that get turned on when you bring sugar in the cell, you'd walk away from that going, oh, wow, insulin is the thing that drives aging. Oh, my gosh, because insulin controls the progression of cell cycles. And you got to remember, you only have 50, 60 divisions of every cell in your body across your lifetime. And you get to choose how fast you use those up to some degree, okay? one of the mechanisms is insulin. So the rate of production of insulin has a whole lot to do with the body progressing through cell cycles and it has a lot to do with other things that control growth. And so the thing about insulin is it works very much like a muscle. It's trainable. It works very much like something that if you don't use, you lose the ability to use it. And if you do use it, it gets very sharp, gets very strong. So it's very similar to like running or deadlifting or biking or anything. You know, if you do it on a regular basis, you're going to be pretty good. If you never use it, you're going to be terrible at it. So one of the failings of this age that we're in is a lot of fad diets have been really focused on like no, no carb or low carb dieting. And what they completely failed to understand in the process was that insulin sensitivity is not a constant. It's a variable. And it's based on how often you use it. And when you stop stimulating it, it's like you stop training. And so you get obese in that sense. You get insulin resistance when you don't train it. And it's very common nowadays to see people coming off like, you know, long-term keto or carnivore diets or fasting and their insulin sensitivity is just wrecked like they have none and they have to train it back into the body. So, one of the best things that you can do for your longevity is two things. Number one, to have very good insulin sensitivity where insulin is very sharp. It's like a muscle that you train. It's, It's very good. You know, it's very strong. But at the same time, spin down the total production of insulin across your week. So, you're making insulin efficiently but you're not making it constantly. That's a really important concept to understand. Because if you do that, you are taking into your destiny un- under your control is two things. Number one, the total amount of insulin, the rate at which you produce insulin, okay? If you cut that in half, you're going to age better. Just, just that one thing. Um, the other piece is that if you strategically stimulate it, it's going to be very efficient, okay? And when you look at different body types, you can explain... Every body type by insulin efficiency. You could look at Dad Bod and go, oh, he's just insulin resistant. You know, you can look at that guy that eats whatever he wants, you know, and it's like, eh, oh, he's just insulin, he has high insulin sensitivity. You can explain it all through that. So what I do is basically it's it's called the, the immunity code diet, the two-day core. What I do essentially is one day I will stimulate insulin directly. I'll go right at it, and I'll eat things that will make the body produce insulin. But everything that I'm eating in one way or another, improves the efficiency of insulin. So, example would be in the morning, I'll do uh, berry phenols, okay? Uh, berries have color pigments in them that get in the serum, and then they affect insulin sensitivity in a positive way. They affect fat oxidation. So,
0: like anthocyanin, for example?
1: Anthocyanins, uh, cyanidin-3-glucoside, uh, cyanidin-3-galactoside, all of these different phenols and carotinids and different things that get into the serum, they are very, very good at sensitizing insulin, Okay. They make insulin. You have to make insulin to deal with this stuff, but they sensitize it at the same time.
0: Quick question for you. What if you overconsume the berries? You know, if someone's listening to this and automatically starts to go, right. oh, oh, great. So, so berries in the morning, you know, is there a limit to how many, like, like, where's the drop Yeah, that's a
1: great question. So the thing you have to understand, and it's a new dimension of understanding. Again, I said, insulin sensitivity is not a constant. It's a variable. It's like an exercise. If you're not doing it, you're not going to be good at it. You're going to suck at it. So, if you haven't been training, you know, if you haven't been, let's say, let's talk about sprints, you haven't been sprinting, I'm not going to go and ask you to go to a track and run an all out quarter mile. You know, you tear every muscle in your legs and kill yourself. Okay, practically, what I would tell you to do is, okay, all I want you to do today is take a walk around the track. Just walk one lap, you know, that's it. We'll do that for a week. And then next week, I'm going to have you do a light jog. And then the week after that, another light jog just slightly faster. And I would, I would slowly ramp you building up your muscles, your tendons, your endurance until maybe in about you know, two months, three months, you know, I could have you do a quarter mile at a decent pace, okay? The way to think of insulin is that it works the same way. If you haven't been stimulating insulin directly, meaning you've been doing low-carb diet, you've been doing carnivore, you've been doing keto, you've been doing intermittent fasting, you're not going to be able to come in right away and eat even moderate amounts of carbs because your insulin sensitivity sucks. You're going to have to start very, very small, just like that guy starting on the track doing one lap walking. You're going to have to start with minute amounts and build your insulin sensitivity up slowly. And that's a very important distinction. It's not in the general awareness. I have another book coming out this year. Hopefully, it will explain that a lot to the masses that insulin sensitivity is not a constant. So yeah, really good question.
0: I actually have worked with a couple of carnivore folks who were doing carnivore as an elimination diet. And you'd see these guys and they're like super fit, healthy guys. And I have one of them who wanted to start gaining weight, you know, and and really doing more of like a, like a bodybuilding approach. And, you know, you want to get some, some starches in your diet to build up your glycogen stores and be able to approach these big, heavy compound movements with a lot of energy. And And it's like, this guy would have like, yeah, one banana and he'd be like, dude, like oh, my brain fucked. Like, I think it's an intolerance. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, I'm like yeah. dude, like, you know, you need to, you need to build yourself yeah. up. And actually, I want to get your take on something that I wrote about insulin sensitivity. It's sort of like an analogy that I use to describe the mechanisms and how lifestyle habits can help improve your insulin sensitivity. I'm really curious to get your, your, your take on this. So I wrote this down here. It says, exercise improves insulin sensitivity by increasing glucose uptake via these molecular mechanisms. So there's a boost in GLUT4 concentration There is GLUT4 translocation of cell membranes, capillarization of skeletal muscle, reducing intramuscular triglyceride, increased beta cell activity. And then the analogy, so that's that's the scientific, the analogy goes like this. Imagine your body is a train station. To optimize the flow of people, or in this case, the metabolism of nutrients, the conductors of the train station, in this case, insulin, need to properly signal the opening and closing of doors, in this case, GLUT4 receptors on muscle. To allow just enough people in at just the right time. The more your trains move, so exercise and physical activity, the better job your conductors can do, the higher insulin sensitivity. And an added bonus is that it puts greater demand on your train station to upgrade its infrastructure and hire more conductors. These are your hypothetical train station upgrades awarded by movement. There's more conductors, so increased beta cell activity for insulin. There's more trains. So, you know, you make muscle gains, you have capillarization of muscle, a boost in glute four concentration, and optimal use of space in the train carts themselves. So there's lower intramuscular triglyceride. So to protect your train station from wear and tear, so sarcopenia, lower testosterone, injury, et cetera, combine resistance training. So a trains moving more quickly and aerobic training, trains are traveling further. And so in this imaginary train station, supply always meets demand so long as you demand health. That's typically how I describe insulin sensitivity to the average person. I'm, I'm curious to get your take, and I'm curious to know how would you build this up considering the way that you organize your day? Yeah,
1: so I like that. I like, like what you did there, and you're right on point. The only thing there that I would probably change would be, so the insulin's not working directly on the glut fours. It's working on the insulin receptor. And so then, you know, between the insulin receptor and the glut fours, that's where the problem is for most people. You know, so what will happen is a whole chain of events between there can happen, potentiated by other things to drive insulin resistance. And so it's that connection between how sensitive the insulin receptor is, which is a, a fascinating thing we could get into. It's it's a it's a three stack protein. It's comprised of syntaxin, VAMP twenty three, VAMP twenty five, SNARE, and it's called the SNARE complex. And it has to do a lot of things correctly, and it's supported by all of these essentially what are called tyrosine kinase scaffolds that are, you know, complex. There's they have to be very specific, and they have to essentially phosphorylate a very specific chain of proteins. And so anything can go wrong in there. And so it's when you when you look at like problems with insulin sensitivity, inflammation, for example, you'll see the issue gets to before you ever get to GLUT four receptor, you get problems way back there. But generally speaking, you know you're pretty much right on there, particularly with the effective exercise on insulin. And, it, and also, not only that, exercise mimics insulin. So, exercise can do the same thing. It can transport, you know, sugar into the muscles. Um, but yeah, I like that a
0: lot. So, basically, reflecting on this analogy, the layer that you're adding is sort of, if you take the conductor and they're pressing the button to open up the doors of the train station, it's like the circuitry underneath that button that then opens up the doors.
1: Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things that can, that can happen and that can go wrong in between there. So generally speaking, yeah, that's the only thing I would add.
0: What are the signs and symptoms that that's the problem? Like, can you take someone mm-hmm. that does... You know the exercise and the aerobic yeah. training, and has a healthy diet, but then has those problems. And how do you diagnose? How do you know what the signs and symptoms are?
1: So you give a good example of your carnivore guy, um, and that's very common, by the way. Like I weekly have people coming that you know did carnivore or they did keto or they did fasting, and their insulin sensitivity is shot. So they'll go and they'll have a, uh, some carb source, and they're wrecked by it completely. And they think, oh, I just I can't digest carbs. Carbs are bad. But blah, blah. they get in this narrative. They tell themselves because that's what pop side nutrition tells them is true. But What's really going on, the thing that you know, like I have to explain to them, is all that happened here is you just tried to run a 400 meters with no training. That's all. Um, you've got to build back your ability to handle carbs by increasing your insulin sensitivity. You've wrecked it by, by the way you were eating. and so that's the simplest way to tell is when someone has, uh, you know, carbohydrates. You know, what happens? Do they handle them efficiently, or do they get tired? Do they get brain fog? And and that's an easy way to know. Another really easy way to know is just simply body body compartments. You can tell pretty much. So particularly, and there's there's different compartments that will hold. Fat and in certain ways, and tell you kind of what the issue is. Um, right around the belly fat is kind of typically your dead giveaway for insulin resistance. So belly button, right around the belly button fat, that's typically going to be a combination of hypoxic fat with insulin resistance in your fat. And you can also look at like if they have really bad gas, typically like when they're going to the bathroom. Typically, that's going to be like their gut biome is not so great. It's more pathobonds than commensals. And then typically, what goes with that is their insulin resistance is going to suck. You can tell that way. So there's there's definitely a lot of different clues you can look. You can look at more kind of classical things. You can look at like basically the the test for insulin resistance is there's a 60 and a 90 minute challenge, and you're gonna take in 50 grams of glucose. And then after 60 to 90 minutes, if you're over 120 still, then that's classified as insulin resistance. So that's that's the most classical way of doing it.
0: So again, reflecting on the analogy, because I do want to add some notes here and I want to make this as complete as possible. I want to do the science justice. So it's like the conductor. Insulin went on vacation for so long. At this point, he comes back to the train station. He's like, "What button do I press yeah. to, yeah. It, you know?" He's
1: kind to of get like the door's open properly. <laughs> it a minute. Wait, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> okay, because you can have all the machinery technically there—the right. meaning machinery—but it's like yeah. the ability, right? Okay, all right. So we've gone on a few rabbit holes now. I want to return to a couple things. Actually, before I get there, you were describing this two-day approach, right? It's like right. one day you do this, right. next day you do that on which one of these days are you doing more more of the work? Are you doing more of the mm-hmm. thinking, the ideas? Is it a low-carb? It doesn't day? really
1: matter. Either one's fine. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't affect me at all. My insulin sensitivity is pretty good. What I left out there was one day I'm stimulating insulin directly, and that's important, but equally important is the next day I'm stimulating insulin indirectly. And that's the piece that is really not on the table that no one's really talking about. And it's that Insulin doesn't work by itself. Insulin is kind of like an aircraft carrier deployment. And when you deploy an aircraft carrier, you got subs, you got destroyers, you got, you know, frigates. You have all these ships around the carrier, and they all make up one thing. And insulin is very much like that. So there's all these other hormones, adiponectin and what are called the incretin hormones, glucose, insulotropic, polypeptide, GIP, and glucogen-like peptide, GLP, and glucogen. And there's all these different family of hormones that can be directly stimulated by foods And learning how to stimulate them directly or learning how to stimulate insulin indirectly by stimulating the family of insulin hormones is how you really attack it. So, you you attack insulin directly from the one hand one day and then indirectly the other day. And so, that's the basic like of how I do things. And what's interesting is a lot of foods that don't really stimulate insulin directly stimulate the helper hormones. So, example would be an egg. An egg is a really good stimulator of GLP-1 and walnuts are really good at stimulating adiponectin, but they don't really have a very big glycemic index. And so, once you begin to understand how these foods work, then you can build this pattern where one day you're going after insulin, but the next day you're not making insulin, but you're stimulating the other hormones, and that's how you really build a real foundation that will last.
0: And is there a way to to test those helper hormones like you test insulin?
1: Yeah. I mean, you can do tests for, you know, things like GIP and glucagon and all that
0: stuff. Interesting. Okay. So now returning to some of the morning routine stuff, one thing I wanted to discuss is this concept of, you know, you get the heavy hitters out of the way early morning. And I think a lot of that has to do with, and and please, you know, interrupt if you're inspired to here, because maybe you can fill us in, fill in the gaps. But, you know, when you get good sleep, the idea is you replenish ATP, you also replenish dopamine. And so this sort of delayed gratification effect, you're a little more sensitive to it in the sense that you can really work in those hours to get something out of the way. And by the time you've depleted dopamine, as naturally it's depleted throughout the day, then later on you could do more of the, what is it, the ISTJ kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you can just focus on knocking things out and maybe even being creative because if I'm not mistaken, I think serotonin kicks up, dopamine is low. So what's your take on that? And maybe if you can help us fill in gaps as you typically, as you do.
1: Well, a big issue is your nighttime
0: cortisol pattern.
1: Okay. It's kind of like where your cortisol peak happens while you're sleeping is a big deal. So, if you're kind of overstretched and your nighttime cortisol peak is happening at the wrong time, then you're not going to really be like kind of in your peak state when you wake up. And so, there's a whole host of things you could do to address that. One of the things I like to do is combine whey protein, which has the large neutral amino acids, it has all these you know serotonin precursors. And you can combine that with EPA, high-dose EPA oil, and eicosapentanoic acid, the acosinoids that it makes, those help to kind of suppress cortisol. So I like to take those and combine them into a shake about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And it's kind of a strategic insert to help cortisol kind of get to where it should be. By the way, that's one of the reasons that... There's a couple reasons, but one of the reasons that it's very common for people in high-stress environments, they'll come home at night and they'll medicate on carbohydrates and alcohol, is because... <laughs> they're looking to get their feel-good hormones up and they're doing it through food. They're doing it through alcohol and looking to de-stress. And so I like to shortcut that in the afternoon, which is when kind of like, you know, the dopamine tends to crater with a shake like that or other different kinds of things.
0: Well, you know, cortisol being very glycolytic and you have a high, very, very intense job. And if you don't, I mean, if you don't have very good insulin sensitivity, you know, it could lead you to, you know, it can be, hypoglycemic at that point, And then, you know, have this craving, this hedonic craving for carbohydrate. So if you don't have that cortisol spike properly, it can lead to a lot of hedonic hunger. So your dinner is typically around that time, 4 PM. Oh
1: gosh, no, no. My dinner is typically about six to seven, six to seven. I'll do a preload meal typically like that. Um, I call it a preload. Well, it is a preload. Preload meal is a meal. It's a small meal, that you have before a larger meal and then it can be highly functional. So you can use different preload meals for different outcomes. A lot of like what I teach like in my book and in my courses and stuff is using preload meals strategically to affect the next meal, to affect the parameters of the next meal. But you can also use them for other things. So stress amelioration is like the example I just gave. You can use a preload for that. But yeah, so I'll have a preload meal in the afternoon. It just depends on like what I'm going for, like functionally. If I'm going to have like a higher carb dinner, then, you know, I'll have a preload meal that helps offset the insulin response, helps increase fat oxidation, helps do all that stuff in the preload meal. Like lowering
0: the glycemic index?
1: Well, what you do is you're shifting the glucose area under the curve. So, instead of like, you know, instead of getting a spike like that, you're getting something more like that, okay? And for those of you that can't see that, I was showing a high initial spike versus like kind of a long, slow spike. And so, meal-to-meal sequencing is a real thing. I mean, it's been empirically validated and measured that what you have at one meal can affect the next meal. And so, I'm just taking that and using it to my advantage where I can have certain things at a preload meal. An example I like to use is red phenols with whey protein and resistant starch if I'm going to have a high-carb meal. And so, resistant starch, whey protein, red phenols work on a number of different levels. Whey protein helps insulin sensitivity, resistant starch, will actually help increase rates of fat oxidation. And it's been proven. Like in studies, you can go and read this stuff. Red phenols actually impair enzymes the body needs to digest carbs. And so, you get these incremental shifts in the way food is handled. Now, it's not a panacea. It doesn't like, you know, it's not like a get out of jail free card. It doesn't work that way. But what you're doing is, it's like athletics. In athletics, you're looking for that 5% improvement, that 10% improvement. And these preload meals are a way to give yourself very significant improvements in meal-to-meal function within the body. So, if I'm going to have a high-carb dinner, like I know I'm going out, I know I'm going to have, you know, whatever, I might have some bread, then I'll do a preload meal that's real functional like that. Particularly, yeah, I'll eat dinner about 7 o'clock at night. And depending on the night, if it's like a Monday or Wednesday or a Friday – it kind of looks like just a healthy meal, you know. It's rich in fiber, rich in good protein, steak, you know, nothing too special about it other than the types of fibers typically you'll see me having at a meal like that are either inulins like asparagus or cabbages or things that are going to feed the right bacteria in the gut. So.
0: so, you're mentioning something like, you know, red phenols. Is this something that you isolate or is this coming from a whole food source? And then my second question that you can follow this up with is Going back to like the blueberry question, right? Like when you talk about starches, you know, you can have cold rice, right? You cool for 24 hours, develop resistant starches, but how much rice is too much rice in this case? So if you could maybe shed some light on those two.
1: Well, it depends on the time you have, a lot of things, you know, it depends on the time that you have it. It depends on
0: what you have it with,
1: you know, all these things, all these things matter. Typically like resistant starches, things like that, I tend to have around noontime. I don't have those typically too much later in the day. I'll have them roughly around noon, like anything that's kind of starchy, like potatoes or rice or things like that, starchy stuff. I'll have kind of around lunch if I'm going to have them. And typically, like I'm 220 pounds. So the amount that I typically have ranges from a half a cup to a cup of one source like brown rice. And then I'll combine that with a half a cup to a cup of garbanzo beans, for example. And I'll kind of mix them together. And the thing to understand about, like we think of carbs when we use the word carb, we think carbs kind of a dumb word. It just makes us think, oh, well, just carb. Carbs are just a dumb thing. It doesn't work that way in practice. When you get into like the aspects of what different types of oligosaccharides do when they're in the body, it's a fascinating field, particularly the way that different types of starches can affect what are called post-translational modifications. It gets into some very interesting stuff. So, starches have a lot of functional power when they're in the body and they work on a number of different levels and different types of starches can do different things when they're in the body. And so it's an underappreciated aspect of these things that we call carbs.
0: So, you know, when you mentioned something like oligosaccharides, you know, those can be sometimes very high FODMAP foods. So how do you draw the line when it comes to like the net benefit? Is it completely bio-individual? Like if you want to get those oligosaccharides for this benefit and then you're bloated. You know, will you take the lego saccharide and deal with the bloating? Or how do you deal with it? Like
1: so the FODMAP paradigm is based on the idea that the problem is the foods. Okay. And in my book, I point out that very often that's not the case. The problem is not the food, it's the bugs. And it's a very provable thing. You can take a number of different issues.
0: As in, by bugs, you mean gummich maker Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: So, one of the things that I point out like in the book is that you can take things that people think are impossible like, you know, oh, I have these gluten reactions. I have lactose intolerance. I have these histamine reactions. You know, it's just the way it is. I can't have these foods. And then you can drive commensal bacteria in the gut and those issues completely vanish, okay? Because the problem was never the foods. The problem was you were missing the bacteria that had the genes needed to digest those things. So, the whole sort of FODMAP question really gets its, lands itself into a little bit of trouble because it presumes the problem is the foods. And I've got literally at this point thousands of testimonials of people that have said, wow, this really worked. My lifelong issue went away You know, as soon as I changed the bacteria in my gut. So I'm not saying that's true in every case. Sometimes you have to eliminate certain foods, but as often as not. The issue is not the foods, it's that you're missing certain bacteria. And if you will take some time and slowly titrate in the commensal bacteria, you'll find that the issues you were having tend to either be greatly reduced or go away completely. And so, when it comes to like, you know, mixing in like certain things like oligosaccharides, very often what you find is that by going through some simple protocols, a lot of the issues you were having aren't there anymore it just stops being an issue. And, and so, most of people that come through my stuff, like the immunity code, they're, they're doing all those protocols. And, you know, not in every case. There's no 100% solution. But very often, more often than not, people are coming in with issues. And by the time they get through, those issues are gone. And it's because of the bacteria, not the foods.
0: Right. So, it's a completely bio-individual problem. And you can get the benefits across the board so long as you know where you're sitting and you do the right testing and you, you can identify the symptoms and therefore address the Specific strains of bacteria, or you know your genetics, and then from there make the right decisions to bring it all together and feed several birds with one loaf, so to speak. You get the benefits of the oligosaccharide in this case. You don't get the bloating. You feel good. Your body can digest it, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I would add probably to that that there's just some basic protocols. So the province of of medicine is with the individual, you know. Like people get these individual differences that only doctors can address, you know, and that's, that's why we have that. So the stuff that I do typically is stuff that it's where you find commonalities with people. Okay. And sometimes those commonalities can be really, really powerful. I mean, sometimes those commonalities can be more powerful than the individual things. Simple example would just be vitamin D. Like, I don't care who you are. If your vitamin D is like in the teens, you're going to have a whole bunch of problems, okay? And if your vitamin D is, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you're going to see those problems go away. And that's true of every human being on the planet. You don't have to be individual for that to be true. So. With regard to like, you know, issues with the gut, there's some basic things that are very simple to implement and have a pretty decent ameliorative impact for most people. Like just things they were seeing, like I couldn't tolerate this food, I couldn't tolerate that food, and suddenly they can do it. And those are things that are very, very easy to do. Don't require like a whole bunch of like, you know, you don't have to split the atom to figure that out. So
0: And do you think that the bulk of health and wellness research that it ultimately denies this bio individuality? You know, if we're looking for specific effects, right, on a global scale in a larger population, let's say, for example, you know, is fiber good for you? Is probiotics mm-hmm. are they good for you? Mm-hmm. Or they how do they you know and this is definitely at a higher level. Do you think that, that mm-hmm. ultimately denies bioindividuality? Is it in favor of someone in the middle? Not to get controversial, but just you know, considering something as bioindividual as this?
1: Well, I think that we have as a current sort of meme in this age, taken the concept of bioindividuality and made it more than it is, like, our commonalities are profound as people. Like, everybody listening to this needs to breathe air. I don't care who you are, okay? And your life depends on breathing air. Every single person, that's common to all of us. And what happens when you breathe air? That's common to all of us. It's common to everybody, okay? Now, you can have, you know, whatever, fibrosis of the lungs, for example, and that impedes your ability to take in air. Okay. And that's a medical condition. But the commonalities that we have are profoundly impactful. And I think that we've kind of taken this thing of bioindividuality so far that it's gone a little too far. Because what I have found is that basic things like having balance in the diet, like, gee, that's an innovative idea, right? <laughs> Having balance in the diet profoundly affects the health of individuals in long-lasting, far-reaching ways. And it's just true more than it's not true. It's true of just about everybody. And there's a lot of things like that that like you can look at a person and say, What are you doing? And they'll explain what they're doing. And I'll say, Well, there's there's no balance in your diet. There's no variety. There's no health in your diet. You're just doing this one thing. You're just eating this. Yeah, I know, but it's, you know, it's yeah, it's good. You know, and it's like it's not good (laughs) it's not going to be good for you in long term and that's common to all humans like we've all had seasons all throughout history where different foods came in and out of availability and variety and and all that that's just built into our diet so that's an example of something that's common to everybody that's profoundly impactful long term and what you see is when people eliminate balance in their diet they might see some short-term improvements but long-term by and large they're seeing massive problems so i guess to answer your question you know there is absolutely a component to human health that is individual and depends on things like you know gene expression or SNPs and all that stuff. But then equally powerful are the commonalities. And sometimes, in fact, the problem is in the commonalities. Like You're just not doing the basics. You're not doing the stuff that's common to all of us. You know? So I don't know if that answers your question. I,
0: it does, it does. And I have a follow-up for that. I know these are more abstract philosophical questions. We'll get back into the concrete stuff in just a second. But I'm wondering, does embracing our bio-individuality you know, for the sake of being five to 10% better. And what that you know entails is being anal about what you're eating and the order and this and organizing your life around all these little details. Do you think that that takes us away from the commonality that brings us together with other people in our society? You know, you think embracing bio for the sake of embracing who we are as an individual can take us away from this collective experience that is also a major component of something like optimal health and longevity.
1: Well, where my mind goes to when you ask me that question is like, you know, I hang out in circles of people that are pretty healthy, generally speaking, like most of them don't drink, you know, most of them don't, in- like when dessert comes to the table, they don't indulge, you know, they don't do that. I think there's a value to like the things that humans have always done, you know, because kind of what's always worked probably is going to always work. And one of the things that humans have always done is they've always gotten together in groups and maybe yeah and laughed and enjoyed food and enjoyed drink, and you know not been so anal about like, you know, I can't do this, I can't do that, and they've just given into the moment and enjoyed themselves and enjoyed company and fellowship with people and I think to the extent that you know when you start to lose some of that, I think maybe that you know it's time to dial it in a little bit and let yourself go go have a little bit of fun, go enjoy that time, go be social, go do what humans have always done you know, and I think it's easy. It's easy. It's sort of easy to get into like the me schedule and the I routine. And you're so into like, I've got to do this at this time. And I've got to like, and then I need this and then I, you know, I need that. And then you kind of become like a formula one, like you're only good for the track. <laughs> you know? You're know, you not multi-purpose. So that's kind of a philosophical answer. But I think that to where it interferes with just, the, I would put at the highest priority, the experience of life itself, you know, like experiencing life and experiencing laughter and joy and love and friendship and you know wonder and all of these things, and I think it's very easy to get so anal about success and everything that drives success that you're not having any of that.
0: So basically, to really render this down to its simplest terms, it's being yourself, doing what really gives you sense of fulfillment, and just just being you. And then in the process, finding those that are also themselves whose company you can enjoy and make this, you know, more collective experience.
1: Yeah, I think if COVID taught us anything, it's that, you know, people are the essential nutrient. Like when you subtract people out of the equation, we go nuts fast. Like we need each other. We need company. We need to be around each other. And life is just better when we're around each other.
0: Cool. So I told you we would shift gears. We could talk about the philosophical all day, and I appreciate your answers <laughs> and the depth of these answers very much. So, but I definitely want to pick your brain about gut microbiome and body composition. You know, you're one of the OGs that discovered you know this relationship, and I'd love to learn more about how something like you know your gut microbiome diversity can influence things like your resting metabolic rate, your adipose tissue energy levels, etc.
1: Well the first thing to understand is that the bacteria in our gut, you have obviously, you know, different species, different taxa, different classifications, and, you know, different things that they do. But the first thing to understand is that those bacteria, just like us, have a metabolism and they have a genome, just like us. Okay. So, you have these separate individuals, separate genome you know, you have these things with a separate genome inside your body and they have their own metabolism. And as such, that means that they need certain things, you know, they need certain things to thrive and that certain things favor one group versus another. Okay. And that when I say that they have a metabolism, anything that has a metabolism makes byproducts of that metabolism, makes metabolic byproducts, you know, just think of it as the poop, so to speak. And the metabolic byproducts of bacteria Released inside of us. Okay. And that has a very important impact on our body. So the other thing is that in this day and age, the concept of bacteria has taken on this halo effect that, you know, bacteria must be good, right? But you have to remember that the purpose of essentially our immune system in the gut is to keep out bacteria from the inside of the body. Okay. So when certain bacteria get inside the body, it's pathogenic. So some bacteria are hardwired to be able to penetrate into the body. That's that's kind of their thing. They're really good at it. And other bacteria have so adapted to living with us that they're really good at strengthening the things that keeps us healthy which keeps them healthy. So all this gets to like the rudder on the ship is the food that you're eating because you have to until now we have thought of nutrition as I'm feeding me. But something that you hear me talk about a lot is I'll talk about some protocol and I'll say now this doesn't feed you. And that's a key difference, is to begin to understand that there are times when you're not feeding you. There are times when specifically you're feeding the bacteria in your gut. And What you're doing is, it's probability. You're advantaging and giving a greater probability to the team that is going to help you win and do what you want. So what happens, the first problem that we have to kind of get our arms around is that bacteria... In their cell walls, when they die, they break apart, they spill out toxins, and, you know, there's a couple different toxins. There's peptidoglycan, there's lipopolysaccharide, and those trigger key, think of them as cell phone towers in the gut, nuclear agglomerization domain one and two, NOD. These act as sort of like, it's like a first warning system. Like if we saw the, you know, the nukes coming in from the Russians, you know, we've got an early warning system that fires off all these signals. And so, these key sort of like, let's call them like cell phone towers in the gut, these NODs, they fire off all these signals, you know, and these signals can be inflammatory in nature. It's it's there to stop, you know, something bad getting into us. So in that response, what can happen is that things can penetrate into the serum. And when things like lipopolysaccharide penetrate into the serum, it does a lot of toxic things in the body. Now, remember, we were talking about insulin just a minute ago, and I was talking about the insulin receptor, okay? And I was saying that there's a chain in between the insulin receptor and the GLP4 proteins. So, for example, one of the things that lipopolysaccharide can do is it will trigger Toll Receptor 4. okay, And Toll Receptor 4 knocks out the first domino in the insulin receptor chain. It knocks out insulin receptor substrate 1, IRS 1. And so, when lipopolysaccharide gets in our serum, it does things like it'll find your body fat. okay, And inside your body fat, it'll drive insulin resistance. By driving inflammation and then because it's driving inflammation it drives a recruitment into your body fat of the protectors the anti-inflammatory or the inflammatory macrophages the SWAT team so the SWAT team is recruited into your body fat and the goal of the SWAT team is to get rid of the offenders but it doesn't really work out that way because once lipopolysaccharide is in the serum it just it's like that fire that keeps on burning and you can't put it out and so that can destabilize the whole body the entire body. You can lose the whole ship from that because that one little thing in the gut that penetrates the gut, gets in your body fat, drives insulin resistance, drives macrophages in the gut, creates this chain reaction. And then what happens is your insulin sensitivity in your muscles goes because insulin sensitivity in the muscles depends a lot on adipokines, depends a lot on hormones from fat to kind of tell it what to do. So, you begin to see that you have these massive metabolic issues, massive that can result from little things in the gut going wrong. Very little things in the gut can... I heard someone the other day talk about insulin resistance as a pathology of skeletal tissue muscle, and nothing could be more wrong than that.
0: The muscle-centric approach to obesity.
1: Yeah, it's completely wrong. Because... When you look at the antecedents and like what's driving all this stuff, okay, there's a sequence of things that's happening, and typically it's beginning much earlier than that. So, whenever you, you know, begin to look at like, oh, well, there's issues with the muscle and the mitochondria, yeah, well, those issues start elsewhere. You know, they typically start in body fat, which itself started in the gut. And so, all this to say, very small things can have massive ripples that affect the entire system. And it just begins really with the class of bacteria in the gut. So, there's two that in my work I've focused on primarily, which is Acromantia mucinilifa and the species, the family of the
0: Acromantia is like the, the mother, right? Of Is that what they call the mother strain?
1: I don't know who's using that now. That's a new one, but... <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know I know that this sounds super almost like fatty, but it's like that particular strain helps so many, many, many more grow and evolve. And if I'm not mistaken, if I'm talking about the right thing. I could be completely wrong. But it's like, I think pomegranates are really good for building up your acromantia.
1: Let's just say it's like a football team that gets on the team. Okay. (laughs) Like, yeah, that's the wide receiver. Okay. But there's a lot of other things involved. Okay. So... I like to focus initially on bifidobacteria because it's really the kind of the workhorse that you initially get from mom. And key strains of bifidobacteria are intimately involved in the human immune system. I mean, they work hand-in-hand with antigen sensing and with dendritic cells in the gut, helping essentially priming the human immune system to better pull samples from the gut lumen and just decide is this do we need something here do we need an antibody what is this and so bifidobacteria through cross-feeding reactions through metabolites tends to feed a lot of other things generally speaking and it's very easy to target bifidobacteria it's a very obtainable target like we're in this age right now in the health space where novelty has become more important than accuracy <laughs> and so you know, I see people saying things for the sake of being novel and standing out. And, and it's, it's just getting ridiculous because, because... It's clickbait. Yeah, they're just saying things that are novel for the potential of like, you know, pay attention to me because I'm I'm saying things other people aren't. But it's just, it gets too far. So, what, what you find when it comes to bacteria in the gut is that you'll see things like, oh, there's this new strain bacteria that helps body fat, but it's impossible to target. Like, it's a big deal. Who cares? fiddle yeah, bifidobacteria is very easy to target, okay? You can feed it in a lot of different ways, and it's very simple to target, and you can spin it up very quickly. So in the immunity code... It's
0: going to help you improve your body composition.
1: Yeah, bifidobacteria has a whole lot to do with body composition. So does acromancia. They both work together very well. So the difference is acromancia is primarily the main bacteria in the gut mucus layer, okay? So, what Achromantia does is it eats spit. It eats mucus. It eats mucins, okay? And mucins are glycoproteins. So, they're, they're long-chain carbohydrates bound to proteins. What Achromantia does is it takes in mucins and breaks them up and gets the proteins and eats that. That's how it gets protein in its diet. But it prefers mucins that are internally secreted. By that, I mean, think of the mucus in your mouth, that's what it prefers. It doesn't prefer protein from the diet. So when you're taking in protein from the diet and and taking in high protein from the diet, you're actually disadvantaging acromantia production. It prefers internally secreted mucus. So a key thing to understand about acromantia, it strengthens the gut mucus layer through a hormetic effect. What it does is it wears it down. It actually eats mucus, wears it down, and then the body responds by building it back up and fortifying it. And so think of acromantia as kind of like the free weights. You know, and then in return, your gut builds a thicker mucus layer. Now you can turn that on its head and take it to an extreme, and it happens in the case of fasting. So fasting will replete Akkermansia. It's one of the things that restores Akkermansia. In fact, in the immunity code, that's why we have you do target Bifidobacteria and fibers one day and fast the next because you're feeding Akkermansia perfectly that way. Fasting will restore Akkermansia. The issue with that is if you do it too much. So, if you do it too much, like you'll, you'll see people that, you know, were fasting for years and now they have these major gut issues, they wore the gut lining out by making too much acromancia. You can get too much of a good thing. And so, you know, if you're fasting all the time and repleting acromancia, then it's the same thing as starvation. Starvation is known to wear the gut lining out. It just changed the words. Oh, starvation. Yeah. Okay. It's because you're making too much acromancia and you're getting too much action in the gut mucus layer of, of it eating the gut mucus layer down. So, that's why balance is so critical.
0: How do you measure that balance? How do you know what's enough? The way that I
1: measure it is that you're not doing the inputs of any one thing too much. So, like I'm not doing too much fasting. I'm not doing too much, you know, red meat. I'm not doing too much fiber. There's just balance in what I'm doing because that's how the body works. Like every science paper about any pathology you will ever read uses the word homeostasis. Okay. That's a word for balance. And then somewhere in there, it says, loss of homeostasis leads to, okay? So what you find is that we have this belief that things are good and other things are bad. But really, the way to think of it is, is a meter. Like, here's good. This is not good. This is not good over here. In the middle is kind of good. Too little is not good too much. And you'll find that's true of almost anything. Too little of a thing is usually not good. Too much of a thing is usually not good we can make that case for antioxidants. So what's somewhat known is oxidative stress. People kind of get that like oh you get oxidative stress too many free radicals. What's almost not known at all is reductive stress. Like nobody knows what is that reductive stress? Well it's been there the whole time. Reductive stress is too much of the good thing. Reductive stress is too much antioxidant activity, too much reductive activity and it's equally as bad as oxidative stress. So the idea that oxidative stress is bad antioxidants are good. You know, no, that's not true. It's sort of being in the middle is good. Too little is bad. Too much is bad. Okay? And so, the same is true of acromantia. You can have too much through extreme practices. And it's just by looking at the extremes, you can kind of stick your finger in the wind. But with respect to metabolism and bacteria, so when we look at both acromantia and bifidobacteria, you find that there's a number of things that both of them do that help human metabolism. One of them has to do with gene expression. And so you'll find that key species of bifidobacteria activate human genes. They're involved with longevity, with being lean. I talk about the example of ANGLP4 or fasting-induced adipose factor, which is a protein that helps fat loss that bifidobacteria actually secrete as a metabolite. But they also have a lot of effects on other things. They affect bile acid secretion, and that affects insulin sensitivity and a whole bunch of other things. Acromancia also seems to affect a number of things. Most notably, it seems to contract the surface area of the gut. So, it seems to reduce net calories absorbed. So, you actually absorb fewer calories when acromantia is sort of abundant in the gut versus when you don't have any. There's some line of evidence with respect to obesity looking at like just acromantia alone seems to solve the problem. And it's because you're harvesting way too many calories from the diet. So, all that to say, you know, kind of long-winded there, but very specific bacteria work in conjunction with the human genome. It's called the three genomes. So, you've got the human genome, bacterial genome, mitochondrial genome. And certain bacteria kind of create this trifecta. They talk and they activate and they cause genes to express. And at the top of the list are acromancia and bifidobacteria.
0: Right. So, let's say you want the three to have this Wonderful conversation where everything sort of falls into place and you can pursue optimal health and longevity and and better body composition. But how do you know that they're having that conversation? A productive conversation?
1: One of the ways is your energy level. So when your energy level is really good, it's a very good indicator. And both in the immunity code and then in my immune-centric fat loss course, you know, I have these little things you can do in there to drive commensal bacteria. And they work very well for most people. Like you do these little tests to spin up bacteria and not everybody, but quite a few people, the majority report like skyrocketing energy levels. And it's from all the B vitamin production in the gut when you spin these bacteria up. So energy levels are definitely an indicator. Smell your poop is another big one. So when your poop smells toxic, your gut's probably toxic. (laughs) When When your poop smells kind of neutral, then your gut's probably in much better shape.
0: So interestingly, one of my follow-up questions here was I wanted to get your take on some of these tests, like you know the Viome, and then then there's like mm-hmm. Seed and such. Mm-hmm. So right now, I'm actually in the midst of doing something. I'm messing around with Viome for the second time. They sent me a free kit, and I'm going through the whole process. And I have honestly found that as of the past few months, I've had some pretty distinct gut issues. So, mm-hmm. and even on Viome, it says that I'm like B vitamin depleted. You know, and I and I make sure to get a lot of. You know B vitamins in my diet, and then you know the smell, of course, has changed. I'm sure you can imagine on on the end of the spectrum that's gone, and so I'm having some of these issues. and And it's interesting, Viome said that you know they have all these supplement recommendations after you get the testing done, and so they actually I think are sending me all these B vitamin supplements. Mm -hmm. But with what you just told me, you know, there's habits that I can enable to improve the gut microbiome so that I can produce more of these B vitamins. Because I do get a lot of my diet already, so it's not like supplementing more will help. It's like, what can I do from a habitual perspective?
1: Yeah, so it's a very, very important question. I tend to be, you know, very much in the camp of food can do most of the heavy lifting for us, and then supplements are supplemental. And I'm a supplement junkie. Okay, I love supplements, but food can do a lot of the heavy lifting for us. So I like to kind of try an approach where you know you give food a chance to work. And very often what's missing in the equation with food is you've only factored in in what you're eating. It's a question of what, like what is it? What's the thing? But you've left out the how and you've left out the when. And when and how are really, really important, really important. So, you know, like I have all these little... Experiments that people can put themselves through, and you can just kind of eat these foods in this sequence and then just test it for yourself. And very often, the outcome is very, very positive. You know, like people will report, Oh my gosh, my energy is really, really high, you know, since doing this. And so sometimes that doesn't work. Sometimes someone's got some issue, and sometimes maybe you need something supplemental. You know, maybe you have a methylation issue. Maybe, you know, who knows? But I like to kind of start with food and just see if, if you can get where you want to go with food and then see where supplements fit in from there. So it's not to say that there isn't a place. I think probably the most interesting space that we're going to be coming up on here in the next few years in the post-peptide era is going to be the strategic use of single strains. Single strains of bacteria for specific issues. And I think that is like in my coaching course, my coaches have seen really amazing results using single strains for issues like, you know, picket, you know, but that's going to be an area that's going to be really hot. I'm personally not a regular user of probiotics just because I prefer to let food do the heavy lifting. Every now and then I'll use something selectively if I need it like, you know, if I got sick, you know, if it was covid or something. Post covid I might have some, you know, some bifidobacteria strains I add in and a few other things, but I tend to let food do a lot of the work. So, I haven't caught up with Viome or Seed, you know, in a while. I don't know what their latest stuff is, so it's probably not fair to comment on that.
0: Right. Well, they're sending me like a combined like 44 44- supplements and like nine strains of bacteria. So, I imagine that one of those strains could perhaps help me with the B vitamin turnover and such. I'd say that the biggest shift that's happened in my life as of the past few months dealing with these symptoms is just the knowledge that I'll be moving across the world (laughs) in the next couple of weeks. And I think that the underlying stress of that has taken its toll on my gut microbiome.
1: Oh, yeah. Where are you moving to?
0: So, I'm going to be moving first. I'm going to be going from, I'm in Miami now. I'm going to be going to New York for a couple of months and then I'll be... Uh Primarily based in Uruguay, Uruguay. Really? Yeah, in Punta del Este. Yeah. Really?
1: What's yeah. up with that? Why, why are you bugging out?
0: Believe oh. <laughs> disaster disaster it No, no, no. So I actually just actually spoke about this on my 50th episode. So if anyone wants to maybe take a deep dive on what's happening, you can tune into that one. But between you and me, what's happening is I was essentially hired as a wellness coach by the head of a venture capital firm. So you know, very wealthy family. And we're going to be, my girlfriend, and I, I've been traveling with them as wellness coaches. They're outsourcing all their wellness decisions to us. So anything from nutrition, fitness, to finding the best specialists in the world to help take care of them, to, you know, programming meals with their private chefs and such. So we're going out there with them and we're pretty much on an on-call basis, but otherwise I'm still gonna be doing the podcast, all the content creation, you know, still have clients that I work with remotely and such. So it's, a really cool opportunity, but yeah. so much freedom tied into it, opening so many doors and just getting to do what I love all at once. And it's blast. taking me all over the world. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a really cool opportunity. Yeah. We're really excited about, you know, uprooting our lives here in Miami and, you know, we have our families here, our friends. It's tough. I like to imagine that I'm really good at handling this kind of thing, this kind of stress, but it's, I know that it's stressing me, you know? And I think that that's where a lot of the symptoms are coming into play.
1: For sure, yeah, well, we'll miss you at the crash. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, in this case, is there a particular approach that you would take to this kind of stress from a gut microbiome perspective, just knowing that stress can diminish gut microbiome diversity, that it can almost snoop the gut the gut microbiome in some ways, you know what would you recommend as a sort of preventative mechanism or even interventional? Yeah, I
1: would start with there's kind of a layer of things you would do. The first thing I would probably start with is dosing some key aminos. So, I would dose arginine, glycine, tryptophan.
0: What about essential amino acids? Because I take the key on essential aminos like almost every day.
1: So, those are great. I love Ben stuff. Since you're asking me a gut-specific question, I'm giving you a gut-specific answer, which is you need arginine, glutamine, tryptophan, glycine. You need those and probably serine. Okay. So, I would probably start with dosing those and then the next thing I would look at would be probably throwing in some BB536. Are you familiar with that?
0: BB536, is that a peptide?
1: No, BB536, it's a Bifidobacterium strain. It's kind of like the Swiss army knife okay. of strains. So it's kind of like your first go-to for a lot of different issues. And the way I like to do that is I like to break the capsules open, put them in yogurt, mix it up really good, and then take it as a food source. So it's loaded with all the glycomacropeptides and you know all the all the milk sugars and all that stuff and do that for a few weeks, like two weeks, probably that's what I would do to start with and see how you feel. If you haven't done the immunity code protocols, I would do those. I would do the HMO.
0: Yeah. I'm going to dig into your book this week. I'm going to dig into that. And I'd love to have you not to conclude the podcast here because I (laughs) want to continue to pick your book while I've got you, but I definitely want to do a follow-up with you a couple weeks from now once I'm done digging into your book.
1: We'll do it. Yeah. Actually, that would be good. Probably go do that stuff, come back and then we will talk. Yeah do the reds the hmos and the apple peel or in your case probably apple peel powder would be better for you yeah do those for sure along with those other things yeah that's what i would do yeah
0: so if you don't mind i'd like to shift gears again and i want to talk a little bit about you know this young muscle young oh muscle. yeah yeah, so yeah the first yep. time that i ever heard of you was on one of ben greenfield's podcasts and i was taking a walk my parents live in an area where there's a lot of land you know large Properties and long roads and such it's a great place to go road cycling or to go walking. And I was walking on this long stretch of road, and as soon as you said you know you want to do the sprints and then the deadlifts, it's like you hunted down the print, are you taking it home? I immediately started sprinting in my earth runners, <laughs> 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 I started sprinting like at full speed. I even took a selfie. If you go to our Instagram DMs, you'll notice the first message between you and I it's like I'm uh-huh. some random dude is just tagging on a story like. In the rain, saying, Hey, just sprinted, listening to the podcast. You know? <laughs>
1: That's awesome.
0: And then I got home to some deadlifts and then I had my first meal. So, if you can tell us a little bit about why I did that, why I may have been motivated to do that, if you can, mm-hmm. you know, maybe motivate whoever's tuning in now to do the mm-hmm. same, you know, what can be said about young muscle and how to build it?
1: Yeah, well, so as we age, this is kind of a big, deep conversation. I'll try and keep it succinct, but.
0: I have all. I don't know about you, but I have
1: I have all the time in the world. (laughs) The body's ability to create energy. Energy is the foundational currency of the body, and when you dive into the you know kind of the cellular milieu, and you ask what does it take to get this particular thing done, whether it's assemble a protein or move something somewhere, it takes ATP. You, You need energy to move things. Okay, so the body's ability to produce energy is essential to life itself. You know, we need to produce our own body weight in ATP every day. And you're certainly not eating that. You know, you're eating what? Maybe a pound or two of food a day, maybe, you know? But you're making whatever, 170, 200 pounds of ATP every single day, okay? That's how important energy is energy is the currency of life. And so, the body's ability to produce energy depends a lot on the musculature because it's the primary storehouse of the mitochondria. And when you break the mitochondria down and you, you know, dig into them, they're not what we think they are. You know, they're, they're essentially, first of all, they don't even look like what we think they look like. You know, they're not these little, little jelly beans we think they are. They're, these, they're vastly different from that. They're these long tubules. They interconnect. They cross cells. They form networks. They essentially have a communication layer that's based on light within them. They have a communication layer that's based on chemistry. So they have two different stacks of communication layers going on. You know, they produce light. They're very, very important. But one of the key aspects of them is complex five, which is an actual engine. And complex five is sort of like, you know, the workhorse of producing a lot of the ATP that the body needs. And so as we begin to age out and the muscles wither, then, you know, you start to see essentially the... It's winding down of the ability to produce energy by virtue of the mitochondria going down and all this stuff. So long story short, that brings us to when we look at like, well, as the body's aging out, you know, losing muscle and losing muscle's ability to create energy is a huge, huge deal. Where's the problem? Well, one of the places the problem is, is in fast twitch fibers. You're preserving the slow twitch fibers as you age. Okay. So that's why you can still get big. You can still, you know, push heavy weights but you're losing the fast twitch fibers. That's why you can't run fast anymore as you get older, okay? And so, when we look at sprinting, among every possible exercise, what's sort of an interesting anecdote is that it's the only exercise tied to survival. Like, pretty much all mammals have to be able to do that pretty well. Like, you have to be able to sprint pretty well. And if you don't, you're probably going to die. So, the ability to marshal a bunch of sudden power output at a peak level is tied to survival. And what I've found is that anything that taps into survival converts a lot of benefit to the body. So, what sprinting does, just as a foundational exercise, is you're pretty much hitting most of the mitochondria in the musculature. You're asking them to do something, to produce work, to produce energy, and it's hitting everything all at once. And it's tapping into multiple forms of respiration. So, you know, you're tapping into like glycolysis and producing pyruvate, producing lactate, producing you know, ATP. It's tapping into all the body's energy production reserves. So, one of the things about sprinting that I think is unique is that it has a unique place. It has a unique place in history and a unique place in the pantheon of exercise so that in the morning in a fasted state, I've just found sprinting yields tremendous benefits tremendous benefits for keeping the body as sort of youthful. As you age, it's really a day-by-day proposition. It's kind of like holding a dagger, you know, if you let go for a second, the thing's gonna drop. And so you just kind of have to keep hold of it. And what you'll find is that you can work yourself up into a very youthful athletic state, you know, I'm over fifty and, you know, I've managed to keep that. But if you let go, even for a week, you gotta go to the back of the line. Okay. So <laughs> I mean you have to start all over. It's crazy. And you age a little bit every day. So, what sprinting does is it really provides a ton of reward for relatively little effort. Like, I'll go and do, you know, just some 50, 100 meter sprints, and, I'll, and I don't even do that many at a time. I'll do maybe, you know, four, something like that. And then I'll go back and do them maybe a little bit later in the day. And what I find is that my energy is through the roof. Like if, if it's later in the day and I'm, my energy's low, I'll just go do some sprints and it's like, I feel like I'm 20 again. I'm brand new. Why? Why is that? It's because when you get into the cellular level, you look at ATP production, look at action, in the mitochondria, you're stoking the youth fire, so to speak, by doing that. So sprinting has had a place in my whole you know life because it's the foundational exercise. And since the immunity code has come out, it's really caught on. Like Kind of everybody's getting into it now. <laughs> there was some dude, some PhD dude, who tried to like, you know, swipe my no warm up sprinting stuff like it was his. And, you know, I'm seeing a lot of podcasts now. Everybody's, so it's having a renaissance, which is really cool because it's the one exercise that keeps the body youthful. And you can use it as a measure. Like people who can sprint tend to be pretty young and athletic, even if they're older. People who can't, I don't care what you look like, you know, your athletic ability tends to go with it. So it's an AMP K activator. It stimulates the mitochondria. It stimulates fast twitch muscle. Stimulates all the things you're going to lose with age, and so it's a good thing to stay on top of. But the trick is you have to build up to it. You know, you can't start like, especially as you get over 35 and 40. You know, you got to give yourself two, three, four, five months to build up to sprinting. You have to start slow and just baby step your way up. Wow,
0: just like you know, when we were first describing building up this insulin sensitivity and tolerance to carbs. You know, it seems like as we age. We constantly have to be sure to build ourselves up to really maximize the benefits of a lot of these healthy habits. So, if we can conclude with the first law of thermodynamics, because I see people online, you know, some of these really prominent, you know, PhDs in the world of nutrition and fitness, they they say, "Hey, it's as simple as calories in, calories out." You know, it's not about fasting. Or autophagy. Autophagy happens as long as you have more calories out versus calories in. You know, you're in deficit, like you get the same benefits, and it's all calories in, calories out, and this. And I'm not gonna, you know, we'll keep names out of this, but I think it definitely the folks who are more like the bodybuilding realm and they have more of the sort of bias towards that first law of thermodynamics being like the and all be all. And you know, some of these folks again, <laughs> not saying names, but they're all about you know, tracking your macros. You got you to track your macros to get in your best shape and live your longest, healthiest life. So, so what can be said about the first law of thermodynamics?
1: They are completely wrong. <laughs> they don't understand it. They haven't studied the first law. Okay, so here's the problem with that. The first law of thermodynamics predicts you can have a non-zero energy balance and the mass of the system stays the same. and It also predicts a non zero energy balance. So, let me give you an analogy here, okay, to explain it. So, conservation of energy. Let's take a cylinder, okay? Think of a cylinder like a piston, okay? And it's got a gas in it, okay? We inject energy into the system, okay? Think calories. We put calories into the system. What does the gas do? The gas expands, right? Has the mass changed? No, not a bit, right? Not a bit. So, the opposite's true. We could take energy out of the system. What's that? That's a caloric deficit, right? What happens to the mass? Does it change? No. The mass is the same. The gas can expand, but the mass hasn't changed, okay? That is exactly what the first law of thermodynamics predicts. It predicts that you can have a non-zero energy balance and the mass stays the same. So translated into nutrition, what that means is that you could be at a caloric deficit and lose no mass. Conversely, you could be at a caloric excess and Gain no mass. That's what the first law of thermodynamics predicts, 100%. So, anybody that's preaching that, when you go back and look at the first law of thermodynamics, there are some really interesting new papers on this subject that seem to suggest that that whole school of thought got it wrong and that it's probably more to do with the second law of thermodynamics with conservation of mass. And there's some interesting arguments about rates of fat oxidation versus rates of carbohydrate oxidation and that these two can shift and so that you can have sort of an increase in a rate of fat oxidation, a lower rate of carbohydrate oxidation. And, you know, this explains a lot of things. So that whole first law of thermodynamics, conservation of energy, it's pretty much like not even based on how the first law of thermodynamics works. What I would say anecdotally is, you know, if you've ever worked with real populations of people, and I've worked with tens of thousands, like you can go to my transcend.fit page pull up a video of the city of Phoenix, and you know what you'll see? You will see thousands of people in a room, okay? Like, and I can tell you, like, you could put them on caloric deficit. You can put them on deficits till the cows come home and they won't drop weight. Anybody who's ever worked with populations like that will tell you that. Like, you can create massive caloric deficits and they won't lose weight. Very often what happens is you put them on more calories and that's when they start dropping weight. So all that to say, calories are foundational. They're extremely important sometimes they're the only thing. Sometimes they're the only thing that'll solve the problem. But very often, as often as not, what I see is, particularly what you get with older populations and you get with like people who are really heavy, there's a whole bunch of other things that factor into the equation, a whole bunch of other things. And so, yeah, you know, like, I mean, I've personally seen tons of people put on massive caloric deficits and they can't drop a pound, okay? And that's exactly what the first law of thermodynamics predicts.
0: First of all, thank you for taking us through that. I want to add, you know, if you take something like calories a calorie and a gram of this is a gram of in excess, a gram of uranium, like one gram of uranium, it's got about 18 million calories. So if you were to consume, you know, according to these folks who are so obsessive about calories in, calories out, this and that, if you were to consume one gram of uranium, you'd gain about 5,142 0.857 pounds. <laughs> so I, like, like, what are you what are you talking about? I had one gram of uranium, you know what I mean? It's, so, anyway.
1: I would just say like when, when you hear that, like I would just say you've never worked with real populations. You've worked with bodybuilders, and that's who you're working. And that stuff works. It works well on bodybuilders. But when you get into real populations, people with insulin resistance, people with, you know, like obesity and all kinds of things, Caloric deficits very often just don't do any good. Like, it's not to say that they don't. Again, sometimes they're the only thing that will solve the problem, but just as often as not, there's so many other variables in play. You've got to get inflammation down, inflammation in the body fat. You've got to get the gut working. There's all kinds of things that come into play to get the needle to move. And I'm not, you know, I mean, that's just reality of it, so.
0: Joel, what an honor. What a pleasure to have you. What an incredible episode. Record for the longest episode and definitely the densest for all the right reasons, and I can't wait to dig into this with my audience. We'll actually also be creating an article that goes into all these key points. So we'll make sure to link to everything in the show notes. We'll link to all of your websites and your books and such. And yeah, I mean, beyond that, thank you. Thank you so much for your time and for your passion and for your ideas.
1: Thank you. Yeah, this was fun. We'll do it again. This is good stuff. So
0: Sweet. Awesome. So that's all for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in today for all of the show notes, including clickable links to anything and everything that we discussed today, everything from discount codes to videos, to research articles, books, tips, tricks, techniques. And of course, to learn more about the guest on today's episode, all you have to do is head to my website, undressprachel.com. That's dot com, and go to podcasts. You can also leave your feedback, questions, and suggestions for future episodes, future guests, so on and so forth. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll see you on the next one. Have a lovely rest of your day.